Welcome to the Pastor's Cut. This week we're on with Jamie Borchek, a teaching pastor from our South Rogers Park Church. And we get to talk with him about the servant songs of Isaiah, the word of the year for 2020, and what this season of Advent is really all about. So let's jump in. I'm Trevor Lovell, and this is the Pastor's Cut with Jamie Borchek. All right, well, Jamie, good to be with you this morning. Hey, great to be here, Trevor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are uh, rolling without a co-host here for a little bit, but hopefully in the new year, we will have a new co-host and we'll be a, yeah. a full team again. Are, are you going to be doing auditions for that? Like, are you are you taking applications? Do the listeners need to submit somewhere? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah, go ahead and submit your applications. Send your videos into uh, jborchick at parkcommunitychurch.com. <laughs> so. Yeah, don't don't actually do that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so Jamie, I wanted to open up with a question. So um, what what's one of the the best Christmas presents that you've ever received? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And every time I think about that, I, I think of the same gift, actually. Um, when I was like, this is shortly after college, um, I was, uh, you know, like I'd moved to Columbus, Ohio. I was like living in the city and wanting to get around more effectively. And so I was like looking for a bike and my dad had his old road bike from when he was in college that he'd given to me, but it hadn't been ridden in like 30 years. And it was, you know, just really beat up. And so unbeknownst to me, my wife, Kinsey took it from our basement, like snuck it out, got it to her dad. Who's, he was a farmer's whole life and just a tinkerer kind of engineer guy. And he took that old road bike and totally refurbished it, fixed it up, painted it, like just made it look awesome. And I, on Christmas morning or, you know, whenever we were doing Christmas with her family, you know, later on, um, he, he kind of the last gift, he walked me out to the garage and, and like there was this my dad's old bike that my father-in-law had fixed up for me. And so it was just a really special kind of meaningful gift on uh, Christmas morning. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Man, it's got like the family yeah. heritage thing, the the skills and kind of time put into it. Yeah. 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 Well, what about you, Trevor? I, I got to have an answer from you on that one. Too. Yeah, man, I should have went first because I don't feel like my answer is quite as good as yours. But <laughs> but one of the ones I always think about is just because there's a story attached is, uh, I mean, I was a kid, like elementary school, and I, I got the Hogwarts Castle uh, Lego set. And it was great. I spent like three days building it. And when it was finally done, it was like this huge accomplishment. And it was on the table in our basement. And uh, then I was messing with my brother and uh, he was going to throw a tennis ball at me and he threw it and I dodged it. But the castle didn't dodge it. <laughs> so oh. it, it hit the castle and took it off the table and it shattered into hundreds of pieces. And I never rebuilt it again. So, oh no, <laughs> yeah. that's a, that's a sermon illustration just waiting to happen. I, yeah. I don't know what for, but like there, there's some, you know, something good like, there. We, yeah. yeah. We can't God, God built this beautiful <laughs> castle for us and we threw the tennis ball and shattered it. And, and so, someday he's going to come again and he's going to rebuild it all. And that's what Advent yeah. is all about. Right. We're anticipating yeah. the rebuilt castle. That's it. it is. Yeah. That's absolutely that's it. it right there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Actually, preach next Sunday. That will preach. Actually on that note, Jamie, since we're in the Advent series, could you, could you talk a little bit like what, what is Advent? What is this season? that we're in. Yeah. 
Yeah, Advent, uh, the word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which uh, is the Latin word that was used to translate the uh, Greek word parousia or parousia. Uh, My pronunciation might be off on that. You can correct me with your uh, academic excellence, Trevor. (laughs) But um, the parousia is uh, the the coming or appearance. Um, And what Advent means is is that coming or arrival. And so the Advent season is about... um, remembering the first coming of Christ in the manger in Bethlehem and looking forward in anticipation of the second coming of Christ in clouds of glory. And so it's this season of life of the church that uh, seems historically started kind of around the uh, fourth or fifth century. Christians started kind of commemorating this season of anticipation, um, originally just looking forward toward the second coming of Christ, but then it kind of got tied in with Christmas. And, and so, yeah, it's a season where we look at the live kind of between those two comings of Jesus and look forward to the next one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it is, it's like a rich season with that whole, um, you know, there's like a mixture of memory and anticipation, looking back, looking forward. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, and, and this year our Advent series is specifically around this idea of peace um, kind of looking at this this biblical concept of peace, the way the Bible talks about it, and taking uh, kind of looking at it from a few different angles and directions. And you kicked that off this weekend um, with the with the first sermon of the Advent series. So, with that, would you give us uh, a quick sermon recap on your your sermon from this weekend? You you preached Isaiah fifty two verse thirteen to fifty three twelve, right? The fourth suffering servant song. You were at. South Rogers Park in South Loop, uh, kind of making your way across the city. So could you, yeah, could you give us a quick recap of that? Yeah. So the, um, you know, the way, the way I started, I talked about, you know, 2020 has been a crazy year. And recently you've probably seen these lists of, you know, like the word of the year from different dictionary publishers. And there's all kinds of words, I mean, pandemic, um, coronavirus, uh, defund, um, you know, protest, you know, you've got, you've got all kinds of words of the year that, that kind of embody all the chaos and conflict of 2020. But one word nobody picked is the word peace. Um, and yet peace is what we all long for, especially in this season. Um, and even as some people this year, throughout this year, were saying, no, we need peace. We need to fight for peace. We need, we need peace to come into our world. There were lots of others who, who responded and said, well, no justice, no peace. You know, you can't have peace unless we have justice first. And, and so there's kind of this cultural conversation around peace that's been happening. And it's something we all desire, but how do we get there? And, um, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was actually written, um, spoken and then written into the life of God's people living in a time full of conflict and chaos. Um, you know, Isaiah's time was at least as troubled as our own. Uh, we can get into a little more of the historical background, but, you know, I, Israel was kind of, um, you know, embattled by surrounding nations who were trying to conquer them and, and who were coming in. And, and then, the, then you had all kinds of uh, corruption and oppression even within Israel where they were unfaithful to the Lord and they were hurting one another and there was all kinds of injustice. And so, you know, God raises up Isaiah as this prophet to speak this message of, of hope in Isaiah, you know, in this servant song, um, speak this message of hope to God's people in that troubled time. And so where I went with the sermon was uh, looking at, I really focused on verses four through six. Um, and maybe it'd be good to just read that real quick. Can I, can yeah, I read that? Absolutely. It'd be helpful because mm-hmm. <clears throat> th- those verses, there's a lot more in here, but verses four through six are kind of the, um, 
you know, the climax of this poem, the, the focal point, the, it's the, there are five stanzas in this servant song. Um, like you said, so there, in Isaiah, there are four of these servant songs that start in chapter like 42. Um, and this is the last of them. And there are these servant songs talking about this, this promised servant of the Lord, who we get more and more detail about in each of these, you know, each of these successive songs. Um, and the servant of the Lord is the one who's going to come and who's going to bring that peace into the world. And so this, these verses four through six, this third stanza out of the five here in chapter 52 and 53, uh, is really the crux of the song. And, and this is what it says. Uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we often uh, preach this passage on Good Friday uh, for reasons that I think are pretty obvious, but it's it's really a perfect Advent text too. And and so what I, what I talked about on Sunday was... Um, you can read through this and you can see it says all kinds of things about us. Um, and so like griefs and sorrows in verse four, um, that's life in this world. Life in this world is characterized by grief and sorrow so often. And then, and, and uh, you know, our secular world looks at all that grief and sorrow and there's a lot of analysis of like, well, why is that the case? Why is the world so messed up? Why are things the way they are? That's the disciplines of sociology and psychology, philosophy, trying to figure out like, why are we the way that we are? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we hurt each other? Why, you know, why is life like this? And the conclusion generally is that it kind of in our secular world is that the problem, the root, root of all the problems that we experience is actually out there in society. You know, it's like people are inherently good and then as we go out into this world, the world messes us up. And so the problem is out there. And if we want to fix the world, we need to, we need to start out there. We need to fix things out there. And if we can fix things out there, if we can reform society and make better structures and systems, then everything will be good. Um, but Isaiah, and I'd say the Bible as a whole, is actually more penetrating in its analysis. Because if you go down just to the next verse, it says, you see at the end of the first line of verse 5, the word transgressions which means crimes. It's like crossing a line you're not supposed to cross, stepping out of bounds. And then iniquities. And, and iniquity means bent. It's like we're, we're bent out of shape. We, we don't grow straight uh, toward God like we're supposed to, but we're turned. And he sums it up in verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And so the idea, like what the Bible says is the real problem. There are problems out there. And the Bible's really honest about the problems out there. But it actually turns and points the finger in here, right at every one of us. And it says the real problem, the root of the problem is in the human heart. It's that we're bent. We've turned away from God. We've crossed lines we're not supposed to cross. And because of that, we live in this world of griefs and sorrows. And so um, that, that's the, that was kind of the first major piece of the sermon was just kind of looking at that and saying, well, like, why, why are things the way they are? Why do we have this grief and sorrow? Well, it's because it's because of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That it reminds me of something, especially when you talk about iniquity in this idea of bent, like not something not growing in the way it's supposed to and how uh, like these different perspectives looking out at society that like there's a, 
the, the common denominator is that something's wrong, right? That, that there's things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And so we're trying to analyze things and to fix it and to get the right diagnosis, provide the right solution. It just, it reminds me of, uh, like the opening chapter of Ecclesiastes when, uh, when it says, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Like there's things are wrong and we have an inability to fix them. Um, yeah. 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 And you know, it's been interesting. So, so I mentioned earlier, like the refrain we heard this summer oftentimes in the midst of all the protest was no justice, no peace. And you know, I, I, I think whatever you think of those protests and whatever you think of, you know, whatever anyone who was saying that at any given moment intended, um, that uh, kind of idea that no justice, no peace is, is I think, according to the Bible, is spot on. Um, and there, there's this recognition just in our culture right now that like peace, we long for peace, but peace isn't free. Peace is costly. Um, you know, like it requires something for peace to, to take place because there's so much that's bent and crooked and messed up out in the world. And so um, that, that cry, no justice, no peace. The problem with it, though, is that if, if you stop and you just say, hey, we need to bring justice out there, you don't go deep enough. <laughs> And so really like what the Bible would say is no, like no justice, no peace is right, but you need to go all the way in here. You need justice for, for everyone. Like we, we deserve something like there's a, there's a price for peace that needs to be paid by every one of us if peace is going to become a reality. And, and that's kind of the second major movement in, in the sermon and in this text. And it's like, well, what's the remedy? What's the solution? And, and that's where you see like he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Uh, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we were healed. And there's this pointer, this suffering servant comes to pay the price of peace that we deserve to pay. You know, and, and Isaiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like that, that price of justice, justice has to be served. But what Isaiah is promising is that justice is going to be served through a substitute someone's going to come and it's going to pay that price that we deserve. Like this is all what we deserve for all of our transgressions and all of our crimes, all of our iniquities. We deserve to suffer all of these things. And yet Isaiah is promising someone's going to come. There's going to be a servant of the Lord who's going to come and he's going to take all of that on himself in our place so that, and you see um, in, in verse five, right at the end, kind of toward the end of verse five, brought us peace. Like we need peace, but that peace needs to be brought to us from the outside in. And this suffering servant is going to bring that peace. And that was the promise that Isaiah made um, 700 years before this suffering servant ever stepped on the scene. And as you read this, like as we, as we read it, we're on the other side of that servant stepping on the scene. And we know the name of that servant. You know, even as you read it on the surface, when I read it a few minutes ago, like, if you're hearing this and you've been in church ever, like, you know who this is talking about. And yet this was a seven century promise from, from God to his people that they waited and they longed for an anticipation. And then Jesus stepped on the scene and here he is, you know, and as we live in this world of trouble and conflict and chaos, like we have the future promise of eternal peace of a peace that will never be broken, <laughs> Uh, and that's what, and we're kind of in the position of God's people back when Isaiah first said this, like we're looking forward to that promise, but we have the payment, we have the down payment already here in the person of Jesus. So that's the, I mean, I just think this text is awesome for Advent and just mm -hmm. for where we're at in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Man, so so what got cut? Yeah. Well, one of the, the first thing that got cut was some of the historical background. Um, you know, there's so much that you can say in this passage. And so getting into kind of the history and the original context, uh, both historically and uh, from a literary perspective, um, that, w- that was one of the things that got cut. Um, like Trevor, I mean, I'm guessing you're, you're kind of familiar with the historical backdrop of the book of Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've studied to, this some. Yeah, to some extent. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, I, it's one of those, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like we were talking beforehand, I asked you, um, the, I was like, so, so Jamie, um, did Isaiah write the first 39 chapters of Isaiah or did he write all of Isaiah? <laughs> and, Cause yeah. that's one of the disputed points. There's kind of a disagreement over that. And, uh, yeah, yeah I liked your answer. Yeah. Yeah. The answer is yes. Isaiah wrote it all. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and as you read, you know, Isaiah, because it's 66 chapters, it's, it's a long book, you know, and there's a lot in here. And so it's a hard book to study all the way through, you know, like I think most of our Bible studies, you know, we, we like to go through four chapter epistles because <laughs> uh, we can get through them real quick, you know, but say a 66 book of 66 chapter book of prophecy, um, you know, written 2,700 years ago, can be a little challenging to, to wade through. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's really a masterpiece. And, and as you see it all as a cohesive whole, it, I think it's really evident that I, there's one author. Uh, the reason people postulate multiple authors is actually because of some of the forward looking things that Isaiah says, you know, like he, he, he paints a picture of this kind of Babylonian captivity and, and rescue from that. And some, some, you know, more secular scholars look at this and say like, well, there's no way someone could have seen the future or could have known what was going to happen. And yet, and yet there's like, there's so much cohesion in all of this. And, and the only way, like, yeah, if you start with the premise that uh, there is no God, um, that the, you know, the Bible is a, just a historical record of thing, you know, of, of the life of the nation of Israel. If you start with that assumption, yeah, you have to draw the conclusion that, yeah, Isaiah couldn't have, there couldn't have been someone who saw what was going to happen in the future. But on the flip side, if you start with the assumption that there is a God who's in control of everything, who who created everything out of nothing, then what's it to him to tell Isaiah, yeah, hey, here's some here's some things that are going to happen down the road, yeah, speak into life to people, you know. Um, so, like, I, I think there's great there, there's great cohesion here, and it makes total sense to see uh, one author for the Book of Isaiah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And because there is a, there's a shift that takes place in the first 39 chapters. There's, I mean, there's, uh, there's some hope in there, like with the stump of Jesse and, and kind of describing some of those pieces, but a lot of it has to do with judgment, right? Him talking about the, the coming judgment of Babylon. Uh, and there's even some historical pieces where it kind of moves out of prophecy and into like more of a historical record there in the, in the thirties. Um, but then once it hits chapter 40, uh, onto the rest of the book 66, there's sort of a, a shift in tone. And that it becomes much more positive, much more hope filled. And that's where we see these suffering servant songs. But, but you're right. There, there is a continuity to it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I think there are three movements in the book of Isaiah. Like the first 37 or 39 chapters, th- there's like, it's kind of like darkness has come over the nation of Israel. Um, and yet there are these little flickers of light, little promises that God makes into the life of the people. And, and, and it, uh, one commentator, uh, Alec Mo- Mo- Motier, he um, he calls it the book of the king, the first 39 chapters, because it it's the po- those flickers of light are pointing to the this like a true king. The kings of Israel have all failed. They they fail to trust God. They fail to 
represent God to the people. Um, they turn to all, they, they're bent, right? All of them. And yet there's these flickers promising like a good king who will come, like little ones. And then that king morphs in chapters 40 through 55 into the servant that we were just talking about, you know, and, and you see, you see a little more revealed, like here's the suffering servant. Here's how the king is going to come and is going to rescue his people and, and, and straighten things out. And then in the last 11 chapters, which I think are the most hope filled and most future looking, even, um, he calls it the book of the conqueror, um, and the conqueror, not in the sense of like, uh, a horrible invader coming in, but, but in the sense of like, the good king taking over the world and eradicating evil. And so this king becomes the suffering servant who becomes the conquering king who reigns victorious in the end and God's people live happily ever after. And that that's the flow of the book of Isaiah. And I just think it's such an awesome uh, narrative all the way through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so what else do you have? Yeah, well, and I'd say, you know, on the historical context, uh, there's just really, you know, we, we often think that we're living in like the worst time ever, or, you know, like it's just, yeah, I mean, think about all the, all the commentary on, on 2020, like just, it's just been such a trash year. And, um, you know, I even thought about like, you could for, um, like a word of the year, you could just put up an image of a burning trash heap and that would probably, probably do it justice. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and we often think like we're living in the worst of times, like, oh, it's never been this bad. It's never been this polarized, like things are falling apart. And yet when Isaiah was prophesying, um, wh what was, you know, like at the border of Israel, you had the Assyrian army who was encroaching, you know, in Assyria, like this, this was kind of a terrorist regime, you know, it was like, you, you know, you, you could, you can think of it even as like, you know, ISIS is on the move and is coming to try to take over. Um, the Assyrians were vicious and brutal. I mean, they were notorious for like, they'd go into cities. And uh, one of one of my seminary professors would always tell this joke. And I'll, I'll say it because I think it I think it makes the the point. But you'd say, um, you know, like the Assyrians, what they, were, what they would do is they'd go in, they'd conquer a city, they'd take all the men out, and then they would impale them on stakes. And they'd do it one of two ways. Like they, it could either be horizontal through the abdomen or vertically uh, through the bottom. Um, but either way, they got the point, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like they got the point because, uh, you know, they were, they were just trying to terrorize people. Um, they would go in, they'd take kings and they would chain them to live bears. And they would, it's like, here's what's going to happen to you if you mess with us. You know, so you think about the psychological terror of being, of living in Israel with Assyria kind of to the, to the Northeast, but coming and moving and you know, they're there. And then on the other side of you, you've got Egypt who doesn't want Assyria to get there because yeah. Egypt is trying to fight. And, and you're kind of at this crossroads between these world powers who are just fighting each other, but fighting each other in your territory, in your space. And like, that was daily life for them. You know, and so uh, whenever we think like, we're, you know, this is this is so bad what we're living. It's like, man, people have had it way worse throughout history. And, and it's not to minimize anything that we're experiencing, but um, God has been very kind to us, uh, you know, where we live today. Yeah. Yeah. It just it makes me think of uh, like other other passages like um, Jonah, right? Go, go to Nineveh, um, preach to them. And Nineveh was capital city of the Assyrian nation. And so it's like these, uh, like that terrorizing nation, that's who he's called to preach to. No wonder he doesn't want to go. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good stuff. Um, yeah. 
Man, so we were talking a little bit about like some literary features in Isaiah's poetry, right? What do you what do you have on that? Yeah, man. So Isaiah is also, I mean, it, it, it's just a masterpiece from a literary standpoint. So just as an example, like if you if you look at chapter fifty three, um, verses four through six, which we read, like. Just point point out some things in here. Verse three, which comes right before, it says he would. So I mean, this is a poem, and it's it's artfully crafted. It's a beautiful poem with parallelism. You know, Hebrew poetry kind of um, it's a little different than English poetry. Like a lot of our English poetry, we rely on rhythm and meter and rhyme. Um, Hebrew poetry is built on parallelism and repetition, and and, and so anyway, what you have. Like he would, verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See, sorrows and grief. And then verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, so, so there's this like, here's this, here's this servant who's despised and rejected. Well, and, and at the end of verse three, um, as one from men whom hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So he's despised and then he's despised. Not. So you're like seeing this repetition there. And then he's, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but it's not his own sorrows or grief. It's ours that he's carrying. And, and Isaiah puts that in there in this parallel fashion. Um, we esteemed him not, yet we esteemed him stricken in verse four, smitten by God and afflicted. You know, so you have this kind of like back and forth, um, the thing, yeah. All, and it runs all the way through, um, even, uh, like if, if you go um, verse 10 further down, well, ver- verse eight, um, you know, so, so uh, in verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So you see that word afflicted reoccurring from verse four. Um, yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before it shares the silence. So he opened out his mouth and then by oppression and judgment. So verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Um and then it, it, later on, stricken for the transgression of my people. So Isaiah is just kind of like built layering what's happening with this servant all the way through here with beautiful turns of phrase. And it's even more evident when you look at the Hebrew text. Um, I read a book when I was in seminary. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this one, Trevor. And I'm, I might, uh, Robert Alter, I think is his name. He teaches at Berkeley. Um, but the art of Hebrew poetry. Okay. And um, are you familiar I've read, with that? I've read the art of biblical narrative. Love that book. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, so yeah, same kind of idea. Like Al- Alter is, uh, he's not, not a Christian. You know, he's a secular university professor at Berkeley, but he's a Hebrew, Hebrew scholar. And what he does in, in those books is like in art of biblical poetry and art of biblical narrative, like he shows you the beauty and the artfulness of it. And, and when you look at a text like this in Isaiah, you just see that fully on display. Like this is, this is, there, there's a reason that, um, you know, some 2,700 years later, people are still reading the book of Isaiah, you know, e- even, even beyond like take it out of the Christian context altogether, out of the Judaic context altogether, like just from a literature standpoint, like this is a phenomenal work of literature. Um, and there's so much to be appreciated here. And, and so, yeah, just I think for those of you listening, my encouragement just on that point would be like sometimes uh, when we read through the Bible, we want to go fast and we want to like get to the meat. It's like some poetry is designed to slow you down and cause you to reflect. And especially in the Old Testament, like 
you need to kind of go slow through some stuff so you can, it's kind of like, um, like, like a hard candy, you know, like you, you need to just kind of suck on it and get it, you know, like get it slow. You don't, you don't go and try to like bite it and crunch it. You need to just kind of like let it sit there. Don't so be the owl. Don't yeah, be the owl. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, how many licks does it take to get oh, to the that's center? That, that's his name. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody know his name? I've never well, heard that. He's before. just an owl. Just don't, don't okay. be the owl. <laughs> oh, don't be the owl. I thought <laughs> yeah. you said Opie the owl. I was oh, like, you no. gave him a name. Wow. No, maybe that's yeah, his don't name. be the owl. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh-huh. No, that's good. That's a good illustration. Yeah, man. All right. Um, so you, you mentioned also you preached this in two different places, right? And you, cho- you kind of chose to close differently in each one of them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, so sometimes, you know, it's funny. You've had this experience, I'm sure, but you, know, you preach a sermon and you're like, man, I do that differently the next time. <laughs> um, you know, like you're like, oh, I wonder if that landed or I wonder how that, how that hit. And, uh, you know, so I recorded this on, uh, initially I recorded on Thursday evening for Rogers Park. And one of the, one of the other dynamics in this season we're in, like when you preach to a camera, you don't get any feedback. Like you don't know, you don't know how things landed. You don't know how people receive things. And so you're like, oh, I felt a certain way as I did it, but I, I don't really know. And so anyway, what I closed with there, I used this illustration, um, Beauty and the Beast. Cause, you know, one way you can think about this is, the depiction of us, you know, like I was talking about like what this text says about us in Isaiah 53. And the picture it paints of us is like, we're the beast, you know, like we're, we're very beastly because of our bent decision. You, know, you think in Beauty and the Beast, like the reason the beast became the beast is because of his pride, his selfishness, like he was bent. And so like what was going on inside of him just became the outside of him. And, and if you could look, you know, if you look at any one of us, um, if any, if people could see what's really going on inside of us a lot of the time, like what they'd see is the beast. If we were inverted like that, like if, if our insides were put on the outside, like we are the beast, that's us. Um, and in the storyline of Beauty and the Beast, uh, the remedy had to come from outside of him. Like he couldn't fix himself. And, uh, you know, for us, what we try to do, we, I think, I think we're, we recognize a lot of the time, like that's true of us. You know, like we see the beastliness there, but what we do is we try to mask it by doing stuff on the outside, you know, like by wearing cool clothes or, um, getting new gadgets or climbing the, climbing the ladder of success. And like, we're trying to put things on externally so that, man, look at me. I, I'm good. I'm not a beast. I'm beautiful. I'm, I'm actually beautiful. I'm not beastly. Yeah. Um, but, but sounds like Gaston. Are, exactly. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, fairy tales are true to life. Uh, C.S. Lewis, sometimes people object to what, you know, the, the, rem- the remedy the Bible puts forward is, is outside of us. It's believe, right? It's, it's like trust in something outside of yourself. And sometimes people object to that and say like, no, it's too easy. Like you should have to fix yourself. But fairy tales are true to life. And C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this. You know, he wrote a book on fairy tales we said, you know, our fairy tales are actually expressions of the deepest longings of our hearts, <clears throat> not because not because uh, we're making stuff up, but because our hearts are, are revealing what's ultimately true, like what we were made for. And, and we were made for beauty, but we find ourselves broken. And so how do we get there? And we need this remedy, like in Beauty, the Be- beauty and the Beast, like what Beast needs is for Belle to come and kiss him. He needs this beautiful... Uh, woman to come kiss him. And that's the remedy. And that's what we need too. like, we need a remedy outside of ourselves. And what 
this text says is we have that remedy. You know, Jesus has come and not only did he come and love us and kiss us, but he actually became the beast for us. He took all our beastliness upon himself in order that we might become the beauty now and forever and have the peace that we long for. And so, um, like I love, I think that illustration really, uh, captures this super well. Um, and even as I'm saying it now, I'm like, man, I, I, I love it all the more. <laughs> um, but so, so I, I gave that when I did it on Thursday night, but I wasn't sure how it, la- how it would land. You know, like it was one of those, like I didn't feel great about it after I did it. And so for Sunday morning, preaching at South Loop, I kind of switched it up. And um, one, you know, think about application. One, one, you've probably had this experience in preaching to Trevor where there's so much uh, you want to say as you're preaching a text, like you want, you want to point out things in the passage and you want to like talk about things, but there's always this pressure of like, well, I also want it, like this needs to change people. Like this needs to make a difference in people's lives. And so like, what's the application on this? And, and it's even something I'm, I'm like kind of working through as a preacher is how, how do I weave application into sermons? Um, you know, and not just like tack it on the end after you've done all the good preaching, you know, so yeah. anyway, mm-hmm. on, on Sunday at, um, at South Loop, I, I went more in the application direction yeah. uh, at the end and just talked about, you know, if, if Jesus carried our griefs and sorrows like this and he paid the price for us, like that, that gives us resources then to be able to do that for others. Like, as we live in this world of, um, chaos and conflict, like we need, um, like we, we God's given us a mission to go and to be peacemakers you know, to, to, to carry that stuff for others. So, and I, and I managed to fit a line from Chance the Rapper in there too, at the end. So nice. What was it? Well, one of my, um, I love, uh, Chance debuted a song on the Colbert show, mm-hmm. uh, him and Daniel Caesar. Have you seen this? No. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Okay. I, I, you'll, you'll have to watch it. It's just awesome. This is a few, it was maybe three years ago or something. Um, and I, I'm forgetting the name of the song, but the, the, uh, the chorus is, um, the day is on its way. It couldn't wait no more. Here it comes. And, and he's talking in this whole song, he's talking about like the coming of Christ, you know, like the second coming, you know, and it's just beautiful. It's like built building that. And he's talking about like the problems in this world. And, and it, you know, the day is on, the day is on its way. Couldn't wait no more. I didn't, yeah, it's just I didn't this know beautiful. You, didn't know you could sing. Didn't know you had melody. Uh, well, <laughs> well, you know, it's not great, but yeah, I'm not chance. We'll yeah. say that. But it's just, yeah. it's just beautiful. So yeah. um, you can look that up later. Yeah. Check out chance on. Yeah, I'll check it out. Nicole Bersha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jamie, it's been great having you on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fun to, fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be on with Dan Osborne, pastor of our Forest Glen Church, as we continue to explore this biblical theme of peace throughout our Advent series. 